You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Steve Clapham, the founder of Behind the Balance Sheet. He's also the author of an awesome book on investing called The Smart Money Method. So thank you so much for being on the podcast, Steve. It's awesome to have you here. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I've never done a podcast with somebody as young and as smart and as enthusiastic. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sure we'll have fun. Absolutely. So Steve... Could you tell the audience a little bit about your background? You know, you've got an awesome background. You know, you've worked with Tiger Cubs and you've done all sorts of crazy things. So, you know, for someone who might not know who you are, could you just tell them a little bit about your background, yeah, your course. journey on Wall Street and, you know, I guess your journey in London because you're based in the UK. So, yeah, so uh, I live in I live in London. I'm actually Scottish, which has been a cause of great consternation because we're in the middle of the Euros as we're recording this for those for those of you in North America, the Euros is a, a very important soccer championship. Yep. And Scotland have got to the to the finals for the first time in 23 years, I think. Anyway, the the my story is that I was a, a sell side analyst for many years. I covered various sectors, actually various geographies. I was one of the few sell side analysts in Europe to follow US stocks as well as European stocks. But I, um, I did that for 15 odd years. And then one of my clients asked me to go and join them. I'd ended up, I worked for a small firm and I just did really um, focused research and trying to find winning stocks. And I had a very small group of clients, but they were amongst the most successful hedge funds in London and in the US. And one of them asked me to go and join them. And this was a financials fund and they were doing more in the non-financial space and they asked me to come and help them because they had a group of financial analysts but they didn't have anybody to do the other stuff and i i was kind of like a special situations analyst really and it's a very good um training ground because you do special situations you're looking for the most attractive risk reward opportunities in the world so it's a global fund Yep. And it was quite exciting because I'd never really done anything much in emerging markets. I'd looked at the odd thing, but you know, you're in the South side, you, you've got a very narrow remit generally. And so when you start to look at stocks in emerging markets, it's really just as a, a reference point for look, to look at comps. And so this was, uh, this was a real eye opener for me. And um, so I was a partner at, Tiger Cub, I was head of research at another multi-billion dollar fund. I then went off, set up my own business. I um, ended up helping a wealth manager in London and they were very good in the UK, but they didn't have anybody with experience of international equities and they were wanting to do more internationally. So they said, can you pick some international equities for us? Which I, that was quite interesting. And then they said, can you manage some of the portfolios for some of the more aggressive, higher, higher wealth um, 
clients. And so I, I started to manage some, some money for some of them. But I was quite divorced from the stock market. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, Wealth Manager, they had um, very limited amount of, of brokerage accounts. They had very limited amount of research available to them. And it was, it was really difficult. You know, um, people tend to think, oh, well, wealth management, it's not as difficult as institutional fund management. But the thing that I found really hard was I was doing very well. And so I would then get a new client would want to, to you know, me to run their, their money. And of course, when somebody comes to you afresh, you've got to start afresh. Yeah. And so, you, you know, if somebody comes and adds money to the fund, you can just top up what you want. But if you're doing something from scratch for somebody, you've got to start from scratch. Right. And so I had the opportunity to go and work for another hedge fund. Uh, it was a small fund and they were just trying to grow it. And so I did that for a while, mm-hmm. but it wasn't very successful. And I, I didn't enjoy it as much as I'd, I'd hoped. And ended up, we we weren't doing that well, and we decided to close the business. And I thought, well, no problem. I'll just go and get another job. I'll get a job as an analyst at another fund. I applied for 47 jobs. Uh, (laughs) It doesn't sound that much. doesn't sound that many. But I'll tell you what, it is a lot of time, you know, filling out all those forms. And it was all online. And... I didn't get a single interview. In fact, the only person that replied to me was a fund where a friend of mine used to have them as a client. He was a broker. One of my brokers used to broke to them. And I said, well, can you call them up and tell them that they should employ me? And they were the only people that responded. And they re- only responded to say, oh, I'm sorry, you've not got an interview. Mm-hmm. So I decided that, you know, my age was counting against me and I needed to do something where my age would count for me. So I set up a training business and that was behind the balance sheet. I started off doing training entirely for institutional investors. I mainly did um, one-to-one training. And then I was asked to produce a forensic accounting course. And that forensic accounting course has been incredibly popular because in the UK, this is about, this is May of 2018. And the UK saw a whole string of collapses 2017 2018 and people said man that could have been me or they said that was me (laughs) how do we how do we stop that happening again and so that was the forensic accounting course is very popular and um you won't be aware of a company called patisserie valerie which was a small cat uk cafe chain which went bust and I had said, you know, it was making margins that were just ludicrous. They were just stupid. And um, so I then started being asked to speak at private investor conferences. And that led me to set up an online training school. So if you go to my website, behindthebalancesheet.com, you can enroll in various investing courses, which are quite unlike anything else that you can, that you can do. And, you know, there's a lot of people who have read a lot of investing books. And there's no question you can read. There are some brilliant investing books around and you can learn a lot from them. I think, you know, people have kindly said that they can learn a lot from my book. But the difference between reading a book and doing a course 
is immense. And it seems bizarre that this is an area in which, you know, so many people have got so much interest and so much money at stake that they're poorly served. And so I'm just trying to remedy that. Got it. And so what exactly do you offer, you know, as part of your training service? So is it just primarily, you know, focused on just forensic accounting? Do you teach people how to, you know, read balance sheets and invest or how does it work? Well, on the institutional side, my main product is my forensic accounting course. Right. And that's been, that's been incredibly popular, you know, um, hundreds of analysts, portfolio managers, even CIOs have been on that course and they all go, oh man, there's a lot of stuff that we should be on the lookout for. And, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, Sri, and, you know, it's the Malcolm Gladwell, the 10,000 hours operates. When I pick up a company and, you know, look at the balance sheet, I've done it so many times, I can usually quickly go to the area where there's a, where there's a problem. And what I've tried to do in that course is to give people the tools without having to spend the 10,000 hours. So I've spent the 10,000 hours and I try and teach them the things that I've learned to look for. But in the online content, it's mainly target. I've got quite a few institutional clients on the, in the online school, but it's mainly targeted for the private investor and teaching them all aspects of investing. So we've got a course called the Analyst Academy, which teaches you how to become a proficient investor. And we've got a course called the Analyst Academy Pro, which is launching in the end of June. So we're recording this just in, in the middle of June. So um, end of June, early July, we're doing a six month program for graduates who are trying to get a job in asset management. So we take the basics of the Analyst Academy. And Analyst Academy, what we do is we teach you how to read a set of accounts. So how to take the financial statements in the 10K and analyze them thoroughly. Yep. We then go through the program that we outline in, in my book of how to pick winning stocks. So how to find a good idea, how to research it, make sure it's a good idea, how to research the industry, how to research the company. We then go through a module, which is how to value companies. So we go through, we explain why, you know, the, everybody talks about the capital asset pricing model. And if you go to university and do any sort of economics or finance course, they'll tell you about the capital asset pricing model. And it's ludicrous because it's a complete waste of time and energy. I don't, I mean, I almost don't understand why they teach it. I mean, I, I do understand. So we go through the capital asset pricing model and why it's a stupid way of looking at companies and what you need to do in practice. And we then have a module which is about how do you decide when to pull the trigger and in what size and how does a stock fit in a portfolio? And then once you've got a portfolio, what do you do? How do you monitor it? How do you know when to sell? Yep. And with the, the pro part of this, we're also teaching students how to write a research note, how to do a stock pitch, how to build a model, how to do a profit forecast. So the profit forecasting one is quite interesting because I've just been, I've been busy doing that at the moment. And I stupidly picked Carnival 
as my <laughs> as my court as my stock because I thought it will appeal to people in the UK and it will appeal to people in the United States because it's got dual listing. Yep. But I hadn't actually thought how complicated it is. So it's taken me twice as long <laughs> as I if I if I'd taken a very simple you know if I'd taken a Facebook or something I'd have done it in half the time. But I think that's quite good because people can follow my travails and see okay so how did he how do you do all this and, and see how difficult it is and I, I think i'm on module 15 and i've only just got to the profit before tax i haven't done any of the cash flow i haven't done any of the balance sheet i mean it took me several um modules to look at revenue it's taken me several modules to look at interest i'm not finished on interest but it's, because it's such a complicated situation, especially right now, um, I think it's really good because you couldn't find a more difficult example. And I think, you know, if you're going to do, if you're going to spend the time, the energy and the money learning about this, you may as well learn, you know, how to do it properly. Yep. Yeah. Got it. Well, let me jump into, you know, the interview and talk about, you know, actual account, like accounting questions and so on. So, you know, what sort of, you know, balance sheet activities and, you know, counting, uh, you know, tricks and so on are you seeing in the U.S. and Europe at the moment? Well, there are so many. I wouldn't know where to start. I mean, the, the past five years has been, in my experience, uh, an unprecedented um, time because I've seen more um, tricks being employed than I have at any other time in my career. Mm -hmm. So when I was doing the forensic accounting course, when I was building it, um, for reasons completely unconnected, I was going around various small cap um, analyst meetings. And I wasn't going there because of the forensic accounting course. I was going there for a completely separate reason. Every single meeting I went to, I, I found an example I could use in my course. I mean, there was not a meeting I went to that I didn't go, man, that is just ridiculous, the things that people are, these people are up to. Mm -hmm. And there was one company that I went to, which is a company called um, Stobart Trucking. And they're a, a logistics company. So they, they run trucks and operate warehouses predominantly for retailers, a few manufacturers. And they're, they're a third-party logistics firm. You, you have them in the, in the US, companies like XPO. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, I went to this meeting and I mean, there were various things that the company was doing, but they, they produced a set of adjusted earnings and they added back 445,000 pounds for the weather. And I, I said to the finance director after I said, so um, just run me through why 445,000, why not 450 or 500? And he said, oh, well, that's because the A38 was closed for three days and we, five days, and, and we had a big, we have a big warehouse there. And I just walked out of that and I just thought, man, you're on a different planet. You know, there's a finance director. I mean, there is no way that he could possibly estimate the impact of snow on the business to the nearest 5,000 pounds. 
He also added back startup costs on new contracts to get from the gap earnings to the adjusted earnings that analysts are all using. And startup costs, I mean, A, they're part of the business of doing logistics because each time you win a new contract, you've got to, you, you know, you've got to set up a new warehouse. You've got to employ people. You've got to train them. You, you know, you can't do it without startup costs. It's part of the business. And they'd never adjusted for startup costs before. Right. Previously, they'd always taken startup costs in the chin. But without those two adjustments, the earnings would have gone negative, not positive. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is just, you know, it's just so obvious, so basic that, but you know, people, people get fooled by this sort of thing. And, um, as I say, I went to, I don't know. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many meetings I went to, but you know, 15 probably. And every single one gave me an example. And all, I mean, all sorts of things, not just, not just messing around with the adjusted earnings or the adjusted EBITDA. There was a whole string of errors. And the issue, and it's particularly prevalent in the UK and Europe, is not quite as extreme in the US, but it's still a problem in the US. What we've had here is we've had the introduction of MIFID II, which has restricted um, the ability of people to, to, to pay for research, to fund managers to pay for research, because now most fund managers, or the majority of fund managers, are paying for research out of their own pocket. Previously, the cost of research was just passed on to the end investor. And it was just, you know, it was a, it wasn't a big thing. So everybody bought as much research as they felt they needed. Mm -hmm. Now the research is being paid for out the company's own PL in most cases. Yep. Certainly in many cases. And obviously people are a lot more sensitive to it. So as a consequence of that, there's a dumbing down process going on in the sell side. And that dumbing down process isn't exclusive to the UK. It's a process that's been going on globally for many, many years. Analysts today follow many more companies than they did 20 years ago. And what we're seeing now is that the sell side is much less experienced, much younger, much less experienced, and much less knowledgeable about the accounting tricks. And at the same time, the accounting has become more complicated because the rules have become more complicated. And the finance directors have become better at, at, at using all sorts of tricks to flatter their numbers. So, you know, you've got a, a cocktail here, which is just explosively bad. I mean, it's really a, a very dangerous situation. And interestingly, just today in one of the Sunday papers in the UK, the, the business editor was lamenting the fact, you know, Mifid 2 has been a disaster for us. And this is creeping into the US because, because you know, big international fund managers who are US domiciled, they're having to do this in Europe. They're thinking about, well, maybe we need to do this in at home as well. So yeah, I mean, the price, the price people are prepared to pay for research has gone down. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in some ways. I think that's a, you know, that's in some ways that's a good thing and perfectly understandable yep. because 
obviously the research in many cases is rubbish. <laughs> you get what you pay for. But, I, you know, I think, I think it's a massive, massive issue. I do. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned was sort of the, the delta between, you know, the gap numbers and the, act, and the adjusted numbers that you know, come out of a company. So you know, what other tricks are being used in order to, you know, make the adjusted numbers look a lot better? Could you go more into that? I mean, the, the people will will use all sorts of tricks. Right? So I gave you the one about the weather. Mm-hmm. Give the one about the startup costs. I mean, you know, these are very typical. You add back things that shouldn't be added back. I mean, the most popular one today, um, and it's sort of it's so popular, it's sort of almost accepted, is stock-based comp. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can't think of any company that I've looked at where they've taken stock-based the stock-based comp charge as a hit to adjusted earnings. And you know, the problem with stock-based comp is not only does it not hit your adjusted EPS, it doesn't hit your cash flow. Yep, it's not a cash item. So it's like I'm, you know, a miraculous disappearing expense. And very few people understand how to handle this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had one of my good clients who are very sophisticated, very thoughtful people. They've got $50 billion under management, which isn't a lot if you're based in Boston or New York. But I can tell you, it's a lot if you're based in Edinburgh or Dublin or London. And they would say, you know, said to me, well, how are we, you know, how should we think about this? And the... There's a piece of research done by uh, a pal of mine in Twitter who looks at SaaS companies. And he said the stock-based comp charge has gone from 8% to 24% of revenues for the group that he looks at. And the funny thing about that is that the stock-based comp, the charge, according, you know, the gap charge isn't, isn't a real reflection of the true cost. So, you know, I mean, I think the standard, you know, the accounting standards are really poor in this respect. In fact, a number of the new accounting standards are really, really bad. The Mm -hmm. new one on leasing is a a complete nightmare. I mean, it is, it is awful. And, um, but if you're, you know, people aren't even using it. Well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what people do. Could you explain, you know, what the, as, uh, as you mentioned, the one on leasing, so number one, could you explain what the, you know, what the new role, what the new standard is, and number two, why you think, you know, it's, it's garbage? Well, the, the leasing um, standard attempts to take operating lease rentals. Mm-hmm. So give you a, a typical example would be an airline renting an aircraft. Mm-hmm. So you've got two, or a retailer, You've got two retailers. There's, you know, one's got the shop at number 24 and one's got the shop at number 22. They make exactly, they sell exactly the same things, exactly the same prices, make exactly the same profit, except that one owns the freehold and one has a lease. Mm-hmm. Now, what the standard tries to do, and the standards are slightly different in the US and, the, and in Europe, the one in the US is actually intellectually less rigorous but in practice better um the one in europe 
is just, I, I think, really quite poor. But what the idea behind the standard mm -hmm. is that the two companies should have the same set of accounts. So the one that's got the, the property on its, on its, one's got the property on the balance sheet, the other one's got a lease rental. So they put the property on the balance sheet as a notional asset. But of course, you can imagine that there's a huge amount of difficulty in ascertaining what is that asset really worth. And what they've done is in, they've compromised, instead of actually trying to get what the asset is really worth, they've tried to, to capitalize the right liability in the balance sheet. And those two things are very different. So you might have a five-year lease and the, the, the corresponding asset is quite low. Mm -hmm. Or you might have a 20-year lease, in which case the corresponding asset and liability are, are higher. But the guy who's got the freehold next door doesn't, there's no change, right? Um, now, obviously, these are things that, you know, in practice, you cannot get around. But the, the, the problem with the way that they've done it is that the, all the, the financial statements are completely affected. So you've got these notional assets in the balance sheet, which aren't, aren't assets at all. You've got these notional liabilities in the balance sheet, which you could argue, well, there is a, there is a liability because if you've got a, a commitment to pay rent for the next five years, that is, a, that is a, a real financial liability. But the numbers just don't make sense. And, you know, two companies can have very different approaches to the way they capitalize that their, their lease rentals and come up with very different results. Yep. So the comparability of their accounts is fundamentally undermined. Now, you know, I used to do the transport sector and the transport sector are massive users of operating leases. Because every airline uses operating leases, not necessarily because they're trying to take things off their balance sheet, but simply in order to give them some operational flexibility. Yep. Because when you have a COVID experience, you can give some planes back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously when you've got a recession, you can give some planes back. Right. So, you know, there's a very good reason why you would, why you would want to have operating leases. But, the, you know, you end up with a really... I mean, a really odd result in many cases, and I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that helpful. Got it. Got it. You know, overall, what sectors of the economy, you know, concern you the most, especially when it comes to, you know, uh, comes to, you know, using accounting standards to play around. Well, I mean, you know, the in the, in the case of the leasing standard, it affects retailers, transportation companies more than it affects most companies. But it's affecting quite a lot of companies. Um, in case of financial shenanigans, where you know companies are cheating, and you know we have to look for accounting red flags. Sadly, I'm afraid that it is every single company, every single sector that you can that you can see. You know, there's not a well, there there isn't a sector that is immune. Or if there is, I haven't found it. So it was funny, you know, you you start off with. Uh, talking about airlines and transport, uh, do you have any thoughts on you know EVs and SPACs and you know, that sort of thing? Where uh, you know you see or you see you know companies trading at crazy valuations. Uh, do you have any thoughts on yeah, pretty much? Well, that? I, I think I, I think it's nonsense <laughs> to be honest. I mean, I, I've 
had a very interesting um, conversation with some venture capitalists. And the venture capitalists think this is fantastic because, of course, it means that they can get out of lots of their lots of their investments and then get out of them quicker and at a higher price than they otherwise would. But the, you know, in theory, the idea that you can give a profit forecast, you would think would be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you, if you, if that profit forecast is just something that, you know, I could just knock up on the back of a, on an Excel spreadsheet in an afternoon, and it's just my aspiration you're giving a hell of a misleading signal to the capital markets. And I think that's a very dangerous precedent myself, because how do you know, how do you know that those profit forecasts are achievable? And people are investing on the back of these forecasts and the people that are investing generally aren't the people that are the most sophisticated. You know, it's no problem for somebody like me. I can take the forecast and look at it and go through it and say, well, that's nonsense and that's not achievable. That sounds sensible. You know, I, I can I can do that work. But the vast majority of people that are being asked or that are investing in these things don't don't have that ability. And so I think it's really quite dangerous in in my view. And the you know the there are well, obviously, as we speak, loads of the specs are underwater. Yep. But I, I, I just think it's a an incredibly, an incredibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous um, trend, and one which the authorities, I think, should be doing more to police. On the EVs, I, I mean, I just don't get it. You know. Um, the automotive industry has always been a very difficult place to invest because the automotive industry is it's overly competitive. It's too much capacity globally. And so it's actually very difficult to make money. And um, the, the EV brings a whole different dimension to that. Now, there is a, an assumption that the new disruptors will be the ultimate success stories. And I think that's highly unlikely because it's, it's very difficult to make a car. Right? It might be even more difficult or less difficult to make an electric vehicle. Clearly, the incumbents have got less experience of making electric vehicles. But I'd be, I'd be incredibly surprised if they aren't making electric vehicles more efficiently and more cost effectively than some of the incumbents. And some of the valuations, the Nikola truck, Lordstown, they just don't make any sense. Yep. I mean, I mean, you know, there's just, in my view, no way that I can rationalize those valuations. You know, I mean, in order for those, some of those companies to be worth what they were trading at particularly at the peaks, you'd have to assume that they were, you know, producing, you know, very large numbers of cars. And I was quite amused when I read um, one of the Bailey Gifford um, articles saying that, you know, they were looking forward to tes Tesla making millions of vehicles. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, I mean, 
you can't argue. I mean, Tesla has done an amazing job, absolutely fantastic job, and they've you know got come from nowhere to being a very serious con contender. But you know, millions of cars. You've got to assume that you know that they've got that they they, they build and consolidate a share and of that market and we're a long way from that you know um much much easier to grab market share when you don't have any competition but if you speak to people in the automotive industry they don't see tesla as being particularly difficult competitors you know they think that they're you know if you if you spoke to Audi before they launched the the, the first electric SUV, which they launched in California, mm -hmm. they were laughing. <laughs> you know, they, you know you, you look at the panel gap on a on a Model Three. They they think it's they think it's hilarious. Got it. You know, uh, you mentioned Lordstown. Uh, I believe it was Lordstown last week. You know. They announced that their so-called binding orders were you know, no, uh, were never actually binding orders. And you know, the CEO and the CFO quit on the news, which is you know pretty interesting to watch. And you now, overall, do you think you know Tesla's accounting is kind of shaky? Do you, because there's a there's a whole group of investors on Twitter who put themselves as part of the uh, Tesla Q crowd, the TSLAQ, uh, implying that you know Tesla is headed towards bankruptcy. Do you have any views on the accounting the accounting that you know Tesla does or you know its financial statements? I mean, Tesla financial statements are—I are, I wouldn't say they're exactly a work of fiction, but they are certainly not accounting statements as I would recognise them. I mean, they're—they're they're using a lot of tricks to make their performance and their financial position look a lot better than it is. I mean, what, I mean, some of those are legitimate, right? When you buy a Tesla, you have to pay for it. I think a week or two weeks in advance. No, normally, you know, when you buy a new car, you make a, a payment the same day. They they require you. I'm not sure exactly how long it is. I think it's at least a week. So they've got a week of sales in cash, which isn't their cash. Now, yeah, I mean that. I mean that is one of the that is one of the more legitimate um, tools that they've used to make their financial performance look as good as it could be but you know nobody nobody talks about issues like that you know and there i mean if you look in detail at the tesla financial statements there is i mean so many tricks that they're using i mean one of the one of the things they do is they redefine ebitda on a quarterly basis almost so that you know when whatever you're looking at isn't what you looked at the previous quarter okay. so you know those are not um strategies that are employed by well-run conservative companies those are strategies that are employed by people that are trying to deceive got it um you know you've worked you know you've worked with tiger cubs you know you've done all sorts of amazing things so you know what does your research process look like you know how do you go through these financial statements to come up with you know whether or not what you're investing in is actually financially sound or not you know what techniques do you use to or do you teach, uh, you know, to your uh, students to actually identify accounting problems? 
Well, I mean, there's two parts to the process. I mean, there's one part is the financial statements. The other part is the business. So, you know, those are two different things. And, um, you know, I, I've got obviously, to you know, got um, people have, have sort of looked at me as being, you know, one of the sort of accounting experts. I, I wouldn't really necessarily consider myself particularly an accounting expert I mean, obviously i've been doing it for quite some time and i'm an accountant and i've been talking about accounting red flags but to me that's kind of like you know what you need to do just to get started you know you if you can't read the balance sheet if you can't read a balance sheet you shouldn't be in the game i know there are plenty of people that invest without having the first understanding of the finan financials but if you're going to be a professional investor you've got a responsibility, you've got fiduciary responsibility to your end investors. And that means you've got to check the financial statements. I mean, you, you know, it's not, it is a given, it's a prerequisite. Um, but, you know, the, the tools that I use are fairly simple. I mean, not, there's nothing sort of particularly fancy about it. I mean, one of the tools is working capital ratios. And mm -hmm. we look closely at the trend in working capital. One of the tools that we use is the comparison of earnings and cash. So, you know, if a company is earning money, it should be generating cash. And if it's not, there's usually something wrong. And um, then there's a whole suite of things that we, we look at. Um, one of the, you know, I'm, I've got a YouTube channel. So on the YouTube channel, we've got a whole section on accounting red flags and I've, I've I'm a, I've got to record a couple more next week and we'll, you know, be recording ones on directors and, you know, you look at the board, who's on the board and are they there to help you and protect your interests? And, you know, one of the things that you often see is you saw it with Theranos, the, the, the big fraud um, a couple of years ago where they filled the board with, the great and the good, we call it. You see it here with Greensill, where they had the former um, prime minister, David Cameron, as, as an advisor. But, you know, Theranos had James Mattis on the board, George Schultz, I mean, two secretaries of state, both in their 90s. And you think, well, I mean, there were a couple of doctors, but, you know, you, know, you think, well, what, what possible value could two former secretaries of state have to... Uh, biotech, healthcare, you know, high-tech startup. I mean, it, you know, you look at that, you think, well, why? Why, I mean, why are they lending their names to it? And why does the company feel the need to have those people? And, you know, those sorts of signals are signals that, you know, your antenna should be up. And when your antenna are up, then you start to think, okay, there's some warning signals here. Maybe I should look at some other some other issues. We had, had the same thing, you know. I did a thing on Greensill, which is a big fraud here, which is um, gone bust, and where Credit Suisse have got ten billion dollars of funds which are associated with it, and it looks like the the end investors are going to lose two plus billion dollars, which I suspect that. You know, Credit Suisse may end up having to foot part of that bill. But when you look at the Greensill accounts, you know, the, the 
I've forgotten how many, six or seven directors resigned in a single day. Now, there might be a plausible reason, you know, I'm not saying that that, you know, necessarily means it's a fraud, but it necessarily means that you think, well, there's something quite unusual about that. Another director had joined the board and resigned a month later. Now that to me is a very, very bad signal because why would you join the board and then resign? The most likely explanation is that you've seen something you don't like and you don't want to be associated with. Yep. Now, I don't know if that was the case with Greensill, but when I see that sort of thing, I think, oh, okay, I need to look even more closely at this company because it's got some, you know, it's in the risk area. And in the forensic accounting course that I do for institutional investors, we go through a whole module, a really long module about all the signs to watch for. And there's lots of them, you know, because every fraud is different. But we go through, you know, some signals that we think are very successful indicators of companies where they're cheating. And some of that's language. Yeah. Do you, you know, could you give us some more examples of, you know, some of those forensic accounting signals or red flags that, you know, you know that, well, I guess you teach your institutional clients? Well, I, I kind of prefer them to come to me and pay me to, <laughs> to get to get the signals. I mean, you know, there are there, there are lots of signals given off the, you know, language, which is very, very complicated language is usually a very bad sign. You know, a company that's trying to overcomplicate something. Mm -hmm. you know, if you if you read if you read Warren Buffett's letters, right? Uh, they're incredibly simple, incredibly clear. You know, a 15-year-old child could read them and, and understand them. Or a 12-year-old kid yep. could read them and understand them. Maybe not understand everything, but they would get a, you know, a good sense. That is what company management should aim for. You know, they should aim for a crystal clear communication. This is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And this is what you should look for. Mm -hmm. And companies which have clouds of smoke and incredible complexity are companies that you should be more worried about because that's not, you know, if, it, if, it's, if it's incredibly complicated, you have to ask yourself, well, why? Because what, I mean, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is not a simple company, but you can explain it very simply. And then are there any places where you don't see these tricks being played? I'm guessing you know, Berkshire would come on would come under that category but now are there any companies or are there any industries or sectors that you see you know where there are a lot fewer accounting tricks compared you know i guess to the average yeah well i mean there are some good companies even in the united states even in the tech sector you know microsoft is a very clean you know company with a very clean set of accounts mm -hmm. but there aren't many yep. you know and you know even when you when you look at microsoft you know you, you, you can say their accounts are quite clean, but they've got a very, very low tax rate, which I, I that's the one thing on the Microsoft account. I, I haven't looked at Microsoft for some time, but when I have looked at it, it it's looked pretty, pretty good. I haven't done a detailed examination of it, to be fair. So I shouldn't, you know, hold it out as a paragon of virtue without having done, you know, the detailed analysis. But, um, the one thing with Microsoft has got a very low tax rate and I don't like, I don't like companies with very low tax rates, A, because it makes me wonder if their profits are real and B, because I don't think low tax rates will endure in the present environment. 
and we've been seeing with the G7 recently that there is, you know, very strong moves to to bring companies um, to bear um, and 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 make them pay more tax. But um, yep. there are very very few companies that I look at that I go, oh, that's a nice set of accounts. I mean, there are some, but not not that many. Got it. And you know, going to the going to the other side of the spectrum, what is the biggest false positive that people see in financial statements? So, like, what is something that people look at and they think it's indicative of fraud, but it's actually pretty normal? Well, I mean, funnily enough, the working capital ratios often give misleading signals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a company that's got it's, you know, growing fast will often create um, large working capital balances that make it look like. The, the sales are being exaggerated or whatever. And, um, you know, high growth companies tend to throw off um, false positives. Mm-hmm. So if you look back, um, and the reason I say Amazon's, um, Microsoft's quite clean is when I apply various tests, Microsoft always comes through, but, you know, you'll get a company like Amazon, will the odd year, give a, a false signal that there's something wrong. Okay, got it. And then what does your valuation process look like? Do you go look at multiples? Do you run, you know, DC evaluations? No, how, how do you go thinking about that? Well, I mean, to be honest, um, valuation is not a big part of my process. Mm-hmm. So, you know, obviously you need to value the company because you you need to have comfort yep. that, that it's cheap. But the, you know, a lot of people will arrive at a stock because, you know, the, the sell side say it's on a P of 18 and it should be on a P of 21. And I find that to be a singularly unsuccessful, not very fruitful and source of ideas. Because generally speaking, you know, stock market can see that the comps are on 20 times and this one's on 18 and there's a reason why the stock market has, has put that discount in place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, obviously that discount can reduce and it can become a premium. The stock market can change its mind. But what I've found more often than not is that the stock market has well understood that the, the valuation gap mm-hmm. and has decided that for whatever reason, this company's not as good as its peers. And, you know, what my process is focused on is looking for changes in a company's disposition, changes in profitability, for example. You know, the, the, most, the most money to be made is where you find a company where the stock market thinks it's going to make $100 million and it's on... A P of 20 and it's got a capitalization of 2 billion and you've got a good reason to think it's going to make 120 and generally when that happens you don't just get a 20 percent uplift but you also get you know it'll go from 20 times to 21 times so you'll get not just the the 20 percent uplift because it's beaten earnings estimates by 20 percent but you'll get a further five percent appreciation or a 10 percent appreciation in the multiple so my process is much more focused on using the, the forecast profitability rather than looking at the valuation multiples. 
Having said that, I mean, I do spend a considerable amount of time trying to understand what the valuation multiple is and what it could be in the future based on my perception of that company's profitability. And, you know, the converse is true for shorts. You know, often you'll go, go short something because you think the consensus estimates are too high. And, they're, they're, you know, if a company doesn't make its earnings, it, it usually goes down, right? Um, but the, the, in terms of evaluation tools, I mean, I just did a video this week on the YouTube channel where I talked about EV to sales. And, you know, EV to sales is a more popular um, multiple today than it ever used to be. So, I mean, EV I used as to in, uh, so EV as an enterprise value, right? Yeah. Okay. Enterprise value to sales. And the reason that I like that multiple is, you know, every finance director I've met, met has got a tendency to like to push it, push the earnings as, as fast as they can. But it's much harder to manipulate the sales. I mean, obviously you can bring sales forward. You can, you can, if you're a fraud, you can make them up, right? So, you know, they're not sacrosanct. But the sales are much easier for the auditor to audit. And they're, they're much less likely to be wrong than yeah. the earnings number or the EBITDA number. Yep. So using sales is a, is a more reliable data point. And I found the EV to sales, if you've got something that's very cheap in EV to sales or very expensive in EV to sales, mm -hmm. the earnings number might look fine. Yep. But the EV sales gives you a different signal. And everybody's looking at the EV, everybody's looking at the PE or the EV EBITDA. So you need to look at something different. And I found EV to sales to be a really useful indicator of a stock which is long-term cheap because its earnings are temporarily depressed. I wanted to move to, uh, to sort of your views on the market today. So do you personally think that overall you know, equities remain overvalued? And where do you personally see opportunity, especially on the long side today? Well, I, you know, I'm not sure that they're overvalued. Um, you know, if interest rates are zero forever, then, you know, stocks are worth a lot, right? Mm -hmm. yep. um, but I think, you know, I'm a believer that we're moving... Uh, you know, secularly from growth to value. I don't like the terms growth and value because to me, you know, what's a value investor? You know, you can be a value investor and invest in Amazon because it's, you know, it, it's buying something for less than it's worth. Yep. But, you know, that, that those terms are traditionally used um, to look at two different types of stock. And so I think we are seeing a rotation. I don't think that, you know, there's any particular problem with some of the big tech stocks. Um, but the, I think that, you know, you're more likely to see the opportunity in some of the bombed out value. Having said that, it's hard to find the bombed out value. You know, I've had some stocks have done quite well over the last 12 months. And you just think, well, do I really wanna be buying more at this point? And you know, even with the stuff that I own, I struggle to, you know, with the idea of committing more money. Um, it's always more difficult to buy it when it's doubled, right? But it's usually the right thing to do. But I'm shying away from that. There's one stock I'm buying, still buying, that it has doubled. And I think it's still got opportunity, but it's not obviously cheap. Um, 
and I just think, you know, the markets are really hard right now. The, there's, you know, stuff that should be bombed at that's gone up a lot. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, you know, who's buying this? And, you know, I, I'm looking at stocks and I'm thinking, I can't imagine who is adding to their portfolio in this because it just looks completely the wrong price. But you don't know when those things will turn and when it will be right to short them. There will be a time to short them, but probably not now because you've got quite a lot of hope about the post-COVID environment and you don't have a lot of very good indicators as to how things will pan out. So, um, you know, in a, in a way, it's pointless fighting against the hope unless you've got deep enough pockets and a long enough time horizon. But the shorts, I always tend to be try and be cuter on the on the timing of entry points because it's very painful when a short goes against you. Yep. On the long side, I mean, I don't have any particularly bright ideas. I mean, the the I've been saying for some time that I thought the casual dining sector in in the U.S. was a very good place to look for opportunities. I, I don't know how it's valued today. I've looked at a couple of things um, in that in that area. And I think that there, you know, there's mileage there because you've got some upward pressure on labor costs because labor is hard to find. You've got some upward pressure on food costs because there, you know, commodity prices are, are rising and prices prices of various food um, inputs are, are are going up. But you counterbalance that by rents are going to fall almost certainly. Um, Mm-hmm. There's an opportunity on the rent side, rents, you know, reasonable cost. And then you've got the situation where there's a lot of pent up demand. You know, I, I mean, it's obviously, I, I don't know what the situation is in Canada. It's obviously slightly different in the United States. But, you know, the situation in London is that we, you know, we haven't been allowed to go out and eat. Or we were allowed to go out and eat, provided you ate outside in April. Well, you know, it's quite cold here in April. <laughs> so it's only now that you know we're allowed to to go to a restaurant and eat inside right. so restaurants are restaurants are busy because there's a lot of pent-up demand so you know that's an area where there's been a big hit to supply so lots of restaurants and even chains of restaurants have gone out of business sadly in the pandemic right and that means that the people that are left will have less competition and they'll they should be able to to make more money Right, absolutely. And you know, how do you think about playing, you know, t- uh, timing, especially sort of in a market where the narrative is driven by liquidity and the Fed and uh, so on and so forth? Especially, uh, you know, it, it almost seems like earnings and fundamentals don't matter anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does seem like that. I know, I know what you mean. Um, at times, it does seem like people aren't paying attention. And certainly, you know, there's been lots of cases, lots of stocks where, you know, the the market's just gone mad. Um, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's much more difficult. I mean, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to manage a pro- professional portfolio today. I'm not trying to maximize my monthly returns. So, you know, when I'm in an environment which I don't understand, I tend not to, I tend not to do anything. Yep. You know, I, I mean, I don't even tend to t- take money out because I think, well, I could take this money out and it could, it could double. And so, you know, if I think something's irrational, my inclination is to, you know, let 
let the let it run irrationally for a bit longer and if things start to turn and things start to become rational you know i'll take i'll take money off the table on the way up but i won't like try and exit until i see that there's strong evidence that there's other people who are bigger cleverer smarter than than i am exiting and that the, you know the that you do get the rolling over because you know you can you can say, oh, well, this is this this stock's a stupid price. And it can be twice as stupid. <laughs> you know, you just it's very difficult to call it's very difficult to call the top in an irrational environment. And I don't need to, you know, I the only money that I'm running is my own money, mm-hmm. my family's money. So I, I don't I don't need to worry about the you know this month's performance. Nobody's nobody's asking me. Well, to wrap up the podcast, I wanted to ask you, is it possible to actually automate foreign secret accounting or is that, is that possible? Have you ever, you know, spoken to anyone about it? Have you ever seen anything about it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've spoken to several people about it. And in fact, I've given um, courses to um, quant outfits who are trying to do just that. Mm-hmm. Um I think you can automate a certain part of it, but you, you, and obviously with artificial intelligence, you, you know, you'll be able to get cleverer about it, but is there's too many variables. So I think that this is an area where there will always be room for the human. I think the investing generally, there'll always be room for the human because it's too complicated. You can't distill it down to a set of variables and press a button. Even even without trying to do forensic accounting, the, the quant quant investors find times of rapid change very difficult to handle. The f- global financial crisis, COVID, very very difficult um, for the you know to keep the model running. And when you start getting into things like forensic accounting, you I mean apart from anything else, you need a hell of a lot of data. Because you know you need to create your own models because the standard models aren't aren't sufficient. You know there isn't there aren't sufficient data points on some of the things that I look at. Mm-hmm. So you know if you download a spreadsheet from Bloomberg, it'll give you the basics. You can work out the inventory turn, but uh, you know I don't even think I've, I've forgotten whether it does or not. Whether Bloomberg gives you the raw materials, work in progress, finished products distribution. And that you need that, you know, that's like fundamental. And, you know, that's a simple example, but there's all sorts of much more complicated examples. And, you know, when we do, when we cover working capital in the forensic accounting course, we go much, much beyond in scissors days, because there's, you know, all sorts of tweaks and refinements you can, you can do, which aren't, which aren't simple. And, you, you know, each company is different. Right, got it. Well, Steve, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was awesome having you. Learned a lot. I believe our learners, I believe our listeners will learn a lot as well. So thank you so much for being on. It's awesome having you. Well, listen, thank you very much for having me. If people want to find me, my I'm on Twitter at Steve Clapham. My website is behindthebalancesheet.com and you can find me in all the other social media, the YouTube channels worth checking out. And if your listeners want to sign up on my website, we've got a great members only club where i post various blogs and things and there's a whole bunch of free training on there as well 
Thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.